Genesis 38. Well, I've really looked forward to this message today, not. <laughs> this is one of those I shared with the group on Wednesday night that uh, this is not an easy one. This is a tough chapter in the Bible. It's, it's kind of a sordid tale. And it's the type that uh, you read through it and you go, and that's there because... And there are some very definite reasons, but it's a hard one. We're going to deal with 11 verses this morning. But this is one of those chapters that's rarely preached from because the sin is so sick. And the punishment for the sin is so severe that it's just unsettling to read. But we're going to deal with it. Because we don't know any better here. (laughs) We truly don't know any better than simply to follow God's word. My prayer has been from the beginning and continues to be that the Bridge Christian Fellowship will be a church that takes God at his word. And what does that mean? It means if it's in the Bible, it's always there for a reason. There's always something that God wants us to see. Now last week we opened up the pages of Genesis 37 to the story of Joseph. And 37 is a beautiful chapter. We see the stature of Joseph in his home. A man of integrity and and innocence. An amazing man. And if you skip ahead to chapter 39, you come back to the story of Joseph. And there we see the success of Joseph in Egypt. But sandwiched in between the two, in chapter 38, we read all about the sickness of Judah and his boys. It reminds me of growing up and going to elementary school and my best friend in those days, Chris Clark. Now, Chris Clark's grandmother was psychotic. She would come to visit, and and this lady really, she had something missing there upstairs. It didn't all work out quite right for her because she would make him lunches when she came to visit. And she got great pleasure out of making Chris what she called peanut butter surprise. You never want the word surprise in a sandwich, okay? She would make things, and I'm not kidding, things like peanut butter and mayo. Or peanut butter and pickles. Or maybe peanut butter and chicken salad. It was always something nasty, something gross, something in between. And you know, as a kid, I loved Wonder Bread. Granted, we understand now that it was really bad for you. But those two wonderful white slices of bread and nothing but guck and filth inside. And that's kind of what we have here with chapter 37, 38, and 39. We have peanut butter surprise right in the middle. And it's not pretty. And it's hard to deal with. It's a sordid tale, as I said, of crime and punishment. Of sexual sin and selfishness. So why is it here? Well, a couple of reasons I can come up with. Number one, it's here as a contrast. Kind of like when you go to a jeweler and you want to look at at diamonds. What do they always do? They pull out that black cloth. And they lay it down. And then they place the diamonds on top of it. And you can see them much more clearly. Well, that's one reason this could be here, chapter 38. Because against the, the diamond of Joseph's life... This little backdrop of Judah and his life is so dark, it's so ugly, that there's a definite contrast, and Joseph looks even better. But I think there's more of a reason that it's here. I think chapter 38 is here as a compass. As I said, taking God at his word means if it's in the Bible, there's always something God wants us to see. But mark this, listen to this. In the Bible, the something is, in almost every single case, a someone. There's always someone God wants us to see. And we're going to see him this morning, but let's pray first. Lord Jesus, we need your help with this one. We need you, Lord, to soften our hearts and to ease us from guilt. Because, Lord, as we study this chapter, it's going to remind some of us of our sins. 
It's going to draw us back to some of the things we've done in the past. Things we may have done recently, Lord. Things that we're not doing right now this morning. But Lord, it's so easy for us as human beings when we read about sin, especially sin that hits close to home. God, it's easy for us just to wallow in guilt and to completely miss the whole point of your restoration. And I pray this morning that we will, Father, admit and and deal with sin that's in our lives. And as we read of the sin of Judah and his sons and see what's going on here and understand the severe consequences, that we would not walk out of here afraid, but Father, instead, enlightened and thankful for your amazing grace. God, as we study this morning, Holy Spirit, speak through me and be with us. And Lord, you be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 38, verse 1. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and he went in to her. Now Judah's got a pagan pal. He's got a pagan buddy, someone he likes to hang out with, someone he goes to visit. And this relationship reveals something that we've heard before, but you need to hear again. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, ungodly connections will lead to ungodly directions in our lives. And it's as simple as that. And nobody is above it. And nobody has the strength to overcome it. If you think you do, you are being deceived. And Paul says, don't be. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Ungodly connections lead to ungodly directions. And so here's Judah. He's left his family. He's now hanging out with Hira, a pagan and a Julamite. It's interesting. Hira's name means splendor. In its, well, in its translated source. But if you go deeper to the original root Hebrew word for Hira, it's actually Harar. And Harar means to grow pale with shame. And that's what sin does. It looks so splendiferous. It looks so beautiful, so brilliant. Sometimes like a bright, shining, clear diamond. It's attractive. If sin wasn't attractive, none of us would have any problem with it. We deal with it and move right on. If sin was dark and ugly and painful and we could see that from the start, who'd want it? But it is attractive. It does lure. It is like Hira's name. It's a splendor to look at at first. But sin is something, folks, that causes us to grow pale with shame. And by the time Judah's entire story, which we won't cover all of it this morning, by the time this story unfolds, we will see that shame is the name of the game. Shame is it. Well, sin barely or rarely begins with blatant rebellion. Folks, it's usually a slow boil. I'd like to ask you to keep your finger right there in Genesis 38 and flip over to Psalm 1. This is a verse that some of you have heard me talk about before. It needs to be familiar to you because it is an outline of how sin corrupts, of how sin works in our lives. Paul says don't be deceived. And that's kind of the bottom line this morning. Nobody should walk out of here deceived, missing exactly how sin works and what it does in our lives. You'll see this as we go on. But look at Psalm 1 verse 1, just the first verse. David writes, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat 
of scoffers. Again, I've mentioned this before. Walk, stand, sit. It's the progression of sin. It's how sin works. You begin by walking, but then you pause and consider and experience a little bit until you're now sitting in the seat of the scoffer. And it's exactly what Judah does. If you look back in verses 1 and 2, this is what's going on with Judah. He leaves his family, goes to visit a pagan Adulamite, hang out with him, and he is walking in the counsel of the wicked. He's done nothing wrong, mind you. There's nothing wrong with talking to a pagan. Nothing wrong with hanging out with a non-Christian person or someone who doesn't share your values or your beliefs. Nothing wrong with that. That's not sin in and of itself. But it's step one. He is now walking in the counsel of the wicked. Then while he's there, Judah sees something he wants. This woman, whose name is Shua, and he looks at her and he thinks, she's a Shua thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now he's standing, though. Now he's standing in the path of sinners. That's what Judah's doing. He's gone. He's hung out with Adula, uh, the Adulamite, Hira, sorry. No problem there, but now he's standing in the path of sinners, and his eyes begin to look around, and he begins to be attracted to a pagan girl. Not one of his family, not one who God would prefer that he marry or be with, but a pagan named Shua. Finally, number three, he took her and went into her. In other words, he is now sitting in the seat of the scoffer. The logical progression of sin. Now you might say, well, how is Judah a scoffer? He just saw her, wanted her, took her. How is that scoffing? I mean, I can understand that maybe being sin, but why is that scoffing? Folks, it's because Judah is throwing God's will up into his face. And any time we do that, we're scoffing at the Lord. Anytime we look at God and just say, hey, I know what your word says. I understand what sin is. But I'm going to do it because it's my right. I want to do what I want to do. That is scoffing in the face of the Lord. It's mocking God and saying, you know, you think you know so much, O Lord, Master of the universe. But I know a little more in this circumstance than you do. And that's where Judah is. Folks, don't be deceived. Ungodly connections lead to ungodly directions, which is why, which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, and this verse just keeps coming up. I don't know why, but Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I've seen this verse several times recently. I don't know if there's someone who needs to hear that verse. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Not just talking about marriage. It could be in any relationship that we have. Don't be unequally yoked. Now this passage may make you squirm a bit. When you hear it, you may think, okay, that launches me into exclusivity, doesn't it? If I'm going to say, I'm not going to be yoked together with any unbeliever. I'm not going to connect myself to anyone who doesn't believe in God the way I do. I'm going to stay away from that type of person. Then I'm... Aren't I kind of a right-wing fundamentalist? Aren't I just saying no to the world and I'm just going to hole up and, and stay with my kind? Lord, are you saying that I'm supposed to dissociate myself from my non-believing friends? How in the world are they going to be saved if I don't go save them? I mean, just because they're not Christian doesn't mean they're bad. As a matter of fact, Lord, come to think of it, there are some Christian people I probably shouldn't be hanging out with. So how do we deal with this? God says it's clear. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And on and on we go with God. And we argue this in our minds. And we try and figure it out. But our questions tend to be dodges more than they are questions. Avoiding the truth of the matter that God says don't be unequally yoked. Well, what does that mean? 
It's talking about the quality of connection with any person that detours you from Christ. Any connection you make with a person, whether again it's in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, a marriage relationship, a business relationship, any connection that begins to detour your walk from Jesus, away from Jesus, that is an ungodly connection. And Paul says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You've heard that phrase so many times, I'm sure, all your life. Bad company corrupts good morals. A bad apple spoils a bunch. Blah, 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 blah. I can work it out. I'm a human being. I'm an adult. And I've got it wired. Think again. Do not, do not be deceived. Ungodly connections lead to ungodly directions. Well, let's see a few of these directions. Verse 3 of chapter 38. So she conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. It's a great name for a boy. Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And then she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chezib that she bore him. Now, three sons that this Shua gives to Judah. Ur, which is what we say usually when our hand is caught in the cookie jar. Ur, Ur, Ur. So that's the problem with his name. Onan, which actually was the first barbarian. <laughs> and we've got Sheila, which is not a good idea to name a boy these days. Okay? But they're all born, and they're, they're born in this place called Chizib. Not Cheesnips, Cheesib. In the land of Canaan. And that's interesting to me. The other names mean various things. Ur, Onan, Sheila... But Chizid means deceitful. These three boys, these lads, are born in the land of deceitful. And it's interesting that they're Judah's sons because Judah himself is going to be frightfully deceived in this chapter. And we'll get to that on Wednesday night. But read on. This is where our verses this morning land us in R-rated territory for violence and sexuality. Verse 6, now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, a name worth circling and keeping a note of. Her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Boom. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. It's called the Leviterite law and it was employed back in those days that if a brother died, the younger brother, the next in line, had to take her wife or at least was bound to take her wife and produce children for his older brother so that especially if it was the firstborn, there could be offspring for the firstborn. That's what's going on here. Well, Onan, you're going to love this, verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. You all know what I'm talking about here. And those who are too young to understand this, we'll just let them figure it out later in life. Okay? Verse 10. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid he too might die like his brothers. Judah's looking at, 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 at Shelah. And he's saying, she's trouble. First two boys of my family that I give to this woman, they die. It's got to be her. I wonder if he's being a little superstitious here. But Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So here's our story. And this is one of those things, again, what do you do with this? 
For one thing, the sins are shocking. The sins are shocking. You might want to know this. I'm going to tell you three things about this. And the first is that the, sin, the sins are shocking. Ur was notoriously wicked, so God took him out. He didn't have any patience with Ur. Now, Onan's sin was equally perverse, so God took him out. By the way, some have said that Onan the barbarian sin had to do with the fact that he was practicing family planning. It's a birth control issue. There are those who have stated, and if you're among us this morning, I apologize, but I disagree. That's not indicated in the text. Birth control is not the issue here. If you want to know what I think about birth control, we can have a whole message on that another time, but not right now. What's indicated in the text here, folks, is that Onan is guilty of two sins. Number one was family plotting. Family plotting. He's saying, I want to be the big chief. I don't want my offspring to be my brother's kids. I want them to be mine. The firstborn is dead now. And here I am. And so when I go into this woman, I'm not going to waste my seed on her. Because the child that I would have with her would be my brother's son. And, and the line would continue on. And that's not fair. I want it for myself. I want to be in first place. And in so doing, Onan not only disobeys his father, he dishonors his brother. And this is sin. It's a power play for position in the family. He was determined to manipulate the situation for his own good. But listen, if Onan didn't want to have kids by his brother, all he had to do was not go in to, to, to Shua at all. Not go into her. Oh, I'm sorry, to Tamar. I've been saying Shua. Tamar's the woman involved here. Onan, all he had to do was back off and say, No, Father, I don't want to go in and be with her. But instead, he's committing the second sin here, and that's a fleshly pleasure. He wants his cake and eat it too. He wants to be able to enjoy the pleasure of being with Tamar without the responsibility that goes with it. And folks, this is huge and this is difficult, but it's exactly where our society is at. Sex is a huge problem, and you all know it. We all know it. It's unbelievable the amount of sex that is just on TV alone. Spend five minutes, any given day, any time of day, and you will see something about sex on TV. In the movies, it is unbelievable how often it comes up. And let me tell you something about sex and the scriptures. And understand this, and I'm going to speak very <laughs> boldly here. God created sex to be a wonderful, physical, pleasurable thing. He did. He gave it to us to be wonderful. And it should be. In the context of a marriage. And only in the context of a marriage. Outside of that, sex is sin. Period. And there's no two ways about it. There's no getting around that. Outside of the marriage of a man and a woman, sex is sin according to scriptures. This beautiful, fantastic, wonderful thing that the Lord gives us as a gift for a man and woman to share. To bond them together. To unite them. To enjoy together. In any other situation is sin. But there's something bigger even than responsibility here that people rarely talk about. See, the problem with, with sex outside of marriage is it's completely irresponsible. It says, I want to be with you, like Onan, physically. I just don't want the responsibility of what could be produced. I just don't want the responsibility of following through. I don't want the emotional connection to you as a person. I just want the fun, the pleasure, and then I want to walk away. 
And it's irresponsible. But the sin, folks, is much greater than just irresponsibility. Flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Over in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. 1 Corinthians 6.15 And let Paul explain this to us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, as you will see Joseph do in ensuing chapters. Flee immorality. And that word immorality, by the way, it's pornea. It is sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral, that is the sexually immoral man, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I've shared the story before, but it's such a powerful example of how we misunderstand this. There's a young man who was in a previous youth group in which I worked, where I was a youth pastor. And he had a tremendous struggle with sex and different girlfriends. And I mean, went from one to another to another, and every time he started dating a girl, I knew within a matter of weeks he'd be in my office talking about, oh, I'm so guilty, I'm so shameful, I did this, I did this. And I'd be saying, you know what it says, just stop, and you know. Well, he went out and he got a tattoo. I mean, he had just a real kind of turnaround experience in his life, and he was really, man, he was gung-ho for Jesus. He came out of a, it was a camp experience, and he and his dad both went out and got tattooed right back on their back shoulder, and his was a scene of the crucifixion, and it was, it was stunning. Now, it was not a commercial for or against tattoos, but he had this right on his shoulder, the crucifixion, the three crosses, and, and it was amazing, the artwork there. But it wasn't long before he was back in my office again, saying, I've slipped up again. I don't know how to handle this. And it just amazed me. I said, you know, do you realize that every time you take off your shirt, what's on your back? Do you understand that you have this symbol on your back of this incredible pain that Jesus paid out for your sins at the same moment you're choosing to remove your shirt to begin sin? Now, I tell you that to explain something, and this is so important to understand. Please get this. We live in a world that thinks you can separate the flesh from the spirit. There's only one way that will ever happen, and that's when Jesus calls us home. But until then, folks, what happens physically affects you spiritually. What happens emotionally affects you physically. We are intertwined. In, we are, we're not different people. I don't sit home and send my flesh out to have fun while my spirit stays home watching TV. We call it the spiritual world and the secular world. The problem is there's no such thing as a non-spiritual human being, whether someone chooses to believe or not. We all have spirit. We all have emotion. We all have the flesh. We're all a mix of all of that. And what I do in one area of my life 
will affect every other area. Guaranteed. They don't talk about, in schools, when they do sex ed, they don't talk about the emotional trauma and destruction that comes with premarital sex. No one discusses that. Because physical and emotional are connected. You cannot pull them apart. And what you do physically will affect you emotionally. The same is true of the spirit. Spiritually in our lives. Man, we have come to act like mind, body, and spirit can be separated. They can't. And you know who blew the whistle on this? Jesus did. Listen to his words. Matthew 5.27. He said, You've heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. <laughs> What's that? I didn't commit any physical act here, Lord. How could I possibly have committed adultery when I didn't do anything? Because your mind and your body and your spirit are one. They're connected. And try to fool yourself, but folks, do not be deceived. What we do sexually affects us spiritually. And sex outside of God's ordained plan is not just physical irresponsibility. It's emotional irresponsibility. It's spiritual irresponsibility. And Onan's sin in this chapter, flip back to chapter 38. Onan's sin is doubly sick because he's refusing a rightful heir for his brother. But he's also refusing to take any responsibility for not only his own body but that of Tamar's as well. Now, the sins of Ur and Onan aren't the only problem with this passage. Their sins are shocking. But you may be one who reads this and thinks, secondly, that the sentences are too severe. The sins are shocking, but the sentences are severe. God looks at Ur's and Onan's sin, and he takes them out. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed some other characters in the pages of Genesis who have done equally bad things, and they weren't taken out. I've noticed some things in the Bible where forgiveness is an option, where mercy is there, where grace is available, but with Ur and Onan, boom, God takes them. I've had enough, and he takes their lives. Well, folks, this should remind us that there is a one end for the path of sin. And that's that all sin leads to death. All sin leads to death. Paul in Romans 5.12 said that through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Now by the way, if you want to blame Adam for that, Paul goes on and he says, because all men sinned. Death entered the world through Adam's sin. That's where it all started. God said, if you eat of this fruit, of this tree, you will die. And Adam did die and death entered the world in the moment that he and Eve took of that fruit. However, death spread to all of us, not because of Adam, but because we all sin. All of us. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now you may, you may think, Rick, I understand that sin leads to death in the big picture sense. But this just seems awfully immediate. It seems awfully severe, and I'm thankful that it doesn't happen like this so much today. You sin and you're gone. I mean, that'd be, there wouldn't be any of us left. In one big, vast, empty earth. Furthermore, there are other times, as I said in Scripture, where God immediately requires someone's life because of their sin. And so we have to ask the question, how can God be a God of mercy and be so severe in this judgment? Let me answer that by saying it is because God is a God of mercy that He is so severe in this judgment. It's for that very reason. How many of you have seen Old Yeller? 
Okay. This is the worst movie of all time to show to young children. Even if you, like me, are just attempting to help your young children learn about the facts of life and that dogs don't live forever. This was the biggest mistake of my life. Sitting Corey and Hannah down to watch Old Yeller. We watched the minute. Cheryl, she caught, she caught me. She said, are you sure they can handle it? They were like five and seven years old at the time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, they need to understand. Your dogs come and go and they die. And you, you know, you get attached and you, you got to get used to this. And it's a good values lesson for them to learn. We spent like two hours after just trying to calm them down. They're crying. You know, big mess. Old Killer is an example of what I'm talking about here because there's this wonderful dog, this big yellow dog running around happy. It's great. What a great dog. And then he gets rabies, actually hydrophobia in the movie, and they have to lock him up. And the oldest boy, Travis, gets to take the gun out and take out Old Killer. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I figured it's a Disney movie. He's going to get better, right? But there's no way he could get better. The sickness was so deep, it was so intense, he could not get better. God takes Ur and Onan out. I put it to you because they could not get better. Because they had crossed a line. There is a, a place, folks, where a person can become so caught up in sin... That they're literally living out, like old Yeller, an insane, painful, rabid death. He got to a point where there was no saving the dog. And there is a point in our life, listen to this. I'll give you some verse backing this up in a moment. There is a point in human life where you cannot return. Where sin is so depraved, there is no return. That's where Ur and Onan were. And when God took them out, it was a mercy killing. He was being mercy. He was putting them out of their misery. John writes in 1 John 5.16. Someday we'll get to the book of 1 John. It's, a, it's an amazing book. But John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he should ask God, and, and God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. John, John's saying, if, if you see someone, a brother, a sister in Christ, who who is sinning, and it's not a sin leading to death, pray for them. Pray for them that God will forgive them and restore them. But John goes on to say, there is a sin leading to death. And if that weren't bad enough, he says, and I do not say that you should make requests for this. What? Yeah, if there's someone involved in a sin leading to death, John goes so far as to say, You might as well not even try praying for that person because it's too late. We don't like to hear that it's too late, do we? And what does all this mean? It means that there comes a time when sin rules, when depravity takes over, when forgiveness is no longer available because, listen to this, because forgiveness is no longer sought. Flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Beginning in verse 21. Another passage that people would prefer to just avoid or overlook, but it's in Scripture, and if it's in Scripture, it's God's Word. Listen to it. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they came, became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart 
was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the Creator rather, or the creature, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, again in verse 26, he says it. God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And as I mentioned recently, if you even read that verse in Canada, apparently it's against the law now. Because it's offensive to the homosexual community. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, he says the third time, to a depraved mind. God gave them over. Folks, what that says is there is a point where God gives up. Gave them over, where he says, that's it. I cannot go any further than this. Where is that point? Where do we actually reach that? Look in verse 28 again. The answer is right there. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. This is hard. It's difficult teaching. And especially for those of us, we have friends or family members who do not believe in Christ. We're thinking, oh no, are they at that point? Listen carefully here. As long as there is day, there is grace. Until Jesus returns, whenever that may be, there is grace. However, there's a point in a person's life where they literally become depraved. Where they literally say, I don't want you, God. I don't want connection to you. I don't want a relationship with you. I do not want you in my life. And when a person gets to that point, God says, then you can have what's left. I give you over to your own decision. The reason why a person in that position cannot be saved is because they have rejected the very hand of the one who saves them. And God's not going to force His will on us, folks. He's not going to make you believe in Him. He's not going to take His vast, amazing grace and just hand it to you and go, well, here, take it anyway. Just hold on to it. I know you don't believe in me, but hold on to this and when I come again, I'll, maybe I'll just kind of miss you. There is a point where God gives us over. And that point is, folks, it's when lifestyle overrides lordship. When lifestyle overrides lordship. There is a difference between sins. It's not all exactly the same. There are sins we commit sometimes in complete ignorance. There are sins we commit even by decision. But there are also sins that are an entire lifestyle. Where I'm saying I choose to live by a behavior that is in and of itself rebellious to the word of God. And when I enter into a lifestyle that says I will not have God in my life. And an absolute rejection. Then how in the world is God supposed to save you? If you're in the water and he keeps throwing you the, the life buoy. The life saver. But you keep batting it away. You will not be saved. Jesus says, truly I say to you, Mark chapter 3 verse 28, 
All sins shall be forgiven the sons of man. That's huge. That's wonderful news. He even says, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Wow. We don't deserve that. But, Jesus says, Mark 3, 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. There is an eternal sin. There is a point where Jesus says, you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. What's he talking about? It tells us in Mark 3, verse 30, they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. They were saying in this moment to Jesus, you are not God, you're Satan. And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's calling the holy, righteous perfection of God Satan. And Jesus says, when you come to that point, you will not be forgiven. That is that point of depravity. When we refuse to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus, we reject the very hand that saves us, and that is a sin leading to death without forgiveness. And Ur and Onan both apparently crossed that line, and God mercifully took them out. Now, with all that said, please listen to this. There's great news for every single person alive today if they will hear it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin and death is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which brings us to the final point, that the sins are shocking and the sentences are severe in this passage back in chapter 38. But folks, number three, and write this down, mark this, the sun is scandalous. The sun is scandalous. Well, which sun? Well, which sun are we talking about? Er? Onan? You talking about Sheila? No, you see, Judah sired another son. A son more scandalous than all the rest of the children that Judah would have. Matthew chapter 1 verse 2 says Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now Judah, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Oh sorry, I skipped the first verse. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. This is amazing. This is why chapter 38 is here, by the way. In the middle of this messy, disgusting, sordid, sick, sinful chapter in the book of Genesis, in the middle of it we see a man named Judah and a woman named Tamar both of whom are listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but Judah, who gets Tamar for his sons, eventually sleeps with Tamar himself. And the two boys he has with her are Perez and Zerah, who also are in the lineage leading up to Jesus Christ. This is scandalous. This is shocking. You think the sins were bad? You think the punishments were severe? To realize, to understand, wait a minute, why not Joseph? If anybody should be in the line of Jesus, it should be Joseph. He's such a good guy. But it's not. It's Judah and Perez and Zerah and Tamar, all these people in this sordid mess. And what's awesome about this is that's where Jesus sets down in history. That's the way Jesus came into the world. Folks, this is not a contrast to Joseph at all. It is a compass to Jesus Christ. 
It points us to Him. In the middle of sin and depravity, exactly. That's where Jesus came into the world. You see, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And we float right back into the spiritual realm and go, oh, so Jesus kind of became like a symbol of sin for us. No! (laughs) He became sinful flesh. He came from a line of sinful people. He walked in a sinful world. And he was perfect until he was lifted up on the cross. When every sin committed was poured onto him. And it wasn't just a vague spiritual experience, gang. It blew Jesus away. It wasn't the cross, by the way, that killed Jesus. It was our sin that killed him. Our sin is the reason he died. Gang, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is filled with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Corrupt, sinful, scandalous people. Why? Because the only way for God to save a sinner like me from death was to take my sin to death on the cross. And that's what Jesus did. And this is not so much a story. I know I've hammered away at sin today. But it's not just a story about sin and its negative effect and how horrible it is and how horrible we are because we are all sinners. Hey, we are. But it's a story of grace. Because again, in the middle of studying this and looking at Judah's life, we realize right down through his line comes Jesus, Savior of the world. God looks at that mess. And yes, he took out Ur and he took out Onan. But Judah he did not take out. Why? Because eventually Jesus would come along to save our lives. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And if you feel like it's been a little harsh this morning, please hear me on this. It is for grace's sake that we talk about these things. Because God's hands are wide open to you, regardless of anything you've done in your entire life. Regardless of how bad your sin may have been, this morning, today, in this moment, God says, come to the cross. Come to me. Let me save you. That's the Father's heart. That's what God wants for us.